Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, good evening, and welcome to LSE Anthropology's annual Malinowski Lecture. As you know, this is a lecture that we hold to hear from um, an outstanding mid-career anthropologist. Um, and our speaker tonight, uh, Dr. Noanika Matur, who works at the University of Oxford um, and is an associate professor there and is head of the South Asia program there, is certainly outstanding. But it's hard also to imagine that she is early on or even middle in her career, given the extent of her work um, and the depth of her work as well. She's provided so many insights to anthropology already. And what's really fascinating is that she's provided these insights from a place that is considered an out of the way or marginalized place. Um, and she's made that a really a kind of center for anthropological thought in very interesting ways that I think are actually kind of radically decolonizing. So this place where she does her fieldwork and has been doing her fieldwork for 15 years um, is in the Himalayas and is in Uttarakhand. Um, and from this site, Noinika has really developed very insightful approaches to anthropological knowledge itself and to how to decolonize it. Um, and she's reflected on this anthropological knowledge in a range of ways, thinking about its placeness, placeness where it emerges from, um, and its limits and potential. And that's the kind of thread that runs through her work from her early modern Asian studies piece, um, A Remote Town in the Indian Himalayas, to a more recent volume with Dr. Chua on who are we reimagining alterity and affinity in anthropology. So what are the more general insights, not just about knowledge that have emerged from this apparently marginal place in Noinika's work? Well, one really important thread in her thought um, is the generation of a new anthropology of bureaucracy. And that new anthropology of bureaucracy was realized most of all in her 2016 book, Paper Tiger, Law, Bureaucracy and the Developmental State in Himalayan India. And this, very importantly, one was recognized by the American Ethnological Society, Sharon Stevens Prize for, for a first book. Now, this book is fascinating because unusually it explores the failures of the developmental state as a result of its everyday rhythms and modes of engagement. It's kind of relations, including a kind of recent drive towards transparency in India and elsewhere. And it's because of its aim to care for and act for the public good that it becomes impossible for it to deliver it because it takes these particular modes and forms. So this is one important thread in her work. Um, another significant theme in her work is that of human non-human relations, which is explored most fully in her 2021 book, Crooked Cats, Beastly Encounters in the Anthropocene. Now this explores the radical uncertainty introduced into tiger human relations in particular by climate change and how this unsettles old relations and even people's understanding of the causes of things. And this leads to Noinika's deeper reflection on the visceral and political effects of climate crisis and what anthropologists can do about it. And Noinika is actually planning to expand on this work um, uh, in the future at a fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton has been developing this theme in relation to other social scientists at Oxford in the TORCH network. 
So what I anticipate in her talk today is that these themes of knowledge production, the public good and the challenges of the climate crisis and non-human human relations will really come together in her lecture. And I'm very excited to hear it. Um, and the title of her lecture is Beastly Tales from the Himalaya and Anthropology for the Anthropocene. Um, thank you so much, Laura, for that characteristically generous introduction. Thank you also to the Department for Anthropology at LSC for this invitation today. Um, I'm conscious of the privilege that it is. I'm also acutely conscious today of the privilege that it is to be assembled here in person in London after two years of the pandemic. Um, I remember listening to Professor Catherine Allerton's lecture on Zoom last year uh, from the foothills of the Himalaya, where we were just slowly and shakily emerging from the utter devastation of the second wave. I tried several times today to find the words that could adequately describe the horror of the months of April and May 2021 in India, but I've repeatedly failed. That conjuring up of another place in time, which Malinowski so effectively deployed to transport us to an island um, in the Pacific a century ago, through that now familiar and perhaps overused anthropological trope of, quote, imagine you've set down in dot, 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 is something that I find hard to execute when it comes to describing what was unfolding in India just a year back. But my talk today is not uh, about the pandemic, at least not directly so. Um, the talk today is really about how we write and talk of fraught times, how we discuss spaces that are becoming increasingly difficult to somehow imagine into being. Um, this is not just due to the complexity and pain for anthropologists have powerfully written on such themes, but because they're unprecedented, unsettled and profoundly uncertain. I want to ask today, what happens when the anthropological knowledge that one is producing lacks a sharp argumentative form rooted in stability, but rather is foundationally uncertain and arises from a ground, which is quite literally in the case of my ethnographic site, slipping and sliding away. When it becomes clear that the entangled multiscalar realities of a planet in crisis cannot be adequately comprehended without establishing more robust conversations with other knowledge forms, not just with arts and humanities, but also with the natural sciences. So in my own recent work, which Laura just sort of referred to, uh, taking on both this radical uncertainty, doing the work of scale shifting, and in particular, a deeper engagement with other disciplines, including wildlife biology and climate science, has led to a reseeing and a retelling of a more familiar story. It is this shift in perspective and this take on the ethnographic project that I wish to relate here today. So I will in my talk today discuss the climate crisis and how it is making itself manifest in, the, in, in one part of India. I'm driven to do so through, uh, to do so through long-term engagement with a particular place in the Indian Himalaya, a place that is changing very rapidly and can no longer, I believe, be understood outside of the climate crisis. If we center the place of the Himalaya, if we so to say think from it and take seriously the conditions of life that currently exist and the ever-present threat of death that permeates it, then what I ask here might an anthropology uh, that writes in the Anthropocene consist of. Now, as, as many of you know, um, I'm sure you know, but I'm gonna run over this very quickly again. Uh, Anthropocene is a term that was coined by geologists to signify an epoch in which Human actions are shaping the planet so profoundly that they're now acting as a geological force. I have up here a quote from Paul Crutzen, who is sort of widely ascribed with, uh, with naming the Anthropocene. Um, but that particular definition he, have, he has, I have up there on the slide, is sort of contested in all sorts of ways, which I will explore in this talk. The Anthropocene has generated a very fast and a very furious debate, and it won't be possible for me to dwell on this ever-expanding de debate in detail today. 
But what I will try to very quickly lay out in my talk is my personal take on it. So how do I interpret it? How do I utilize it? How do I um, apply it, so to say, to, to the Himalaya? Let me sort of begin very quickly with some of the criticisms of the Anthropocene, which in fact are deeply compelling. So one of the biggest criticisms, an early criticism of the Anthropocene was that it originated from the natural sciences um, and this could lead to a domination of a natural science perspective on it. So eclipsing out the humanities and social sciences in many ways, particularly what's worrying in, in this um, domination of the natural sciences could be the capacity of the concept to decenter the vital role played by capital and by empire in the planetary crisis. Um, and of course, there's an assumption in the term itself that there is a singularity to the anthropos, to humanity, which runs almost forcibly counter to the anthropological project of carefully passing out who precisely it is we are talking about. And of course, you know, as I'm sure all of you recognize in this room, there's also the commodification of the academy itself with its periodic and increasingly dizzying new turns, concepts, isms, and now scenes. So indeed, my own early work was for these reasons and more critical of the concept of the Anthropocene. And I sort of was quite strongly critical of it earlier on. So why then would I be standing here today to speak to you of the Anthropocene, or more specifically of an anthropology for the Anthropocene with no scare quotes hovering above Anthropocene? My intention today is not to try to convince anyone of the usefulness of the concept, as for instance, Bruno Latour did in his AAA Distinguished Lecture back in 2014, where he argued that the Anthropocene is a gift to the discipline, nor is it my intention to spell out what an anthropology of the Anthropocene should consist of in the manner that Amelia Moore writes of an Anthropocene anthropology or Anna Singh and her collaborators of the Apache Anthropocene. My thinking on the Anthropocene is of course, very much in conversation with and inspired by a remarkable body of work, including the people I've just mentioned, uh, but also many more that have sort of emerged in the recent past. What I'm, I would like to particularly note here, the critical scholarship on the Anthropocene um, that has made calls for its creative remaking. So to take it away from being a geological category and to creatively remake it in the way that you know, we would like in a way uh, as anthropologists or historians or sociologists in a way that is attendant to both the history and the politics of colonialism, capitalism, and industrialization. I'm drawn to what I consider a fundamental premise of the Anthropocene concept, that a radical new form of interdisciplinarity is the need of the hour, that the comfortable disciplinary silos in which perhaps we have for too long sequestered ourselves are no longer tenable. In addition to this body of work that has variously made calls for decolonizing the Anthropocene or indigenizing the Anthropocene, I am also very much influenced by a very vast scholarship from environmental history, political ecology, and environmental sociology, which has a particularly rich presence in South Asia, and in important ways prefigures many of the more recent discussions on the Anthropocene. And again, um, unfortunately, I won't have time to go into, you know, into detail on the ways in which I'm, I'm sort of influenced by, by these two bodies of work, but I hope what I'm about to say will make that a bit clearer. Okay, so drawing upon this literature, I'm interested in crafting an ethical anthropological practice that remains true to that which is unfolding in the Indian Himalaya. My interest in the Anthropocene has grown quite organically out of my long-standing research in a small North Indian state called Uttarakhand, which is located largely in the Himalaya on India's borderland with Tibet and Nepal. In particular, I'm guided by two characteristics that I find striking, both of which I will elaborate upon today. The first is the incessant talk of endings and death of the Himalaya that emerge not just in relation to extreme events, but are also very much evidence um, in, in evidence in everyday chatter. 
Secondly, and relatedly, I wish to center forms of storytelling that are narrated with regards to rapidly changing human-non-human relations, centering discussions of the dying Himalaya, as well as stories of changing human-non-human relations, has led me to reframe and rethink my own research and writing in this area. Now, um, again, for those of you sort of familiar with the literature on Anthropocene or on climate change, you'll see that there's a huge new emphasis on new forms of storytelling. So this is coming from across the humanities, the social sciences, that we have to find new ways to tell particular kinds of stories. You also see it in the work of Marilyn Strathern, Donna Haraway, Ursula Le Guin, et cetera, where the centering the kind of stories we tell. Instead of stories, I prefer the term beastly tales, uh, for that to me is a more precise description of the types of stories that I'm just going to relate here very briefly. For there are about beasts of all forms. These are tigers, leopards, humans, the state, capitalists, bureaucrats, hunters, poachers, bears, dogs, deer, gods, and demons. This phrasing is also a play on the question of who is the real beast of the story. Um, and this phrase is, um, you know, who's the real beast of the Anthropocene, so to say. Uh, it's sort of a slippery way. Uh, it's slippery as a category. And how do we sort of establish that? Um, and this phrase is, of course, uh, taken with immense gratitude from the writer Vikram Seth, who has an utterly delightful collection of poems entitled Beastly Tales from Here and There. Now, Seth's book contains 10 animal tales. All of these are in verse form, and all of them are sort of morality tales that rest on very unlikely animal relationships. Through an elaboration of Beastly Tales from the Indian Himalaya, I wish to make a case for an anthropology for the Anthropocene, by which I mean not just an academic practice that takes seriously this concept, but also which contributes to academic and public discussions on what it means to live in this epoch in which human activities are reshaping the planet we inhabit. As I've already mentioned, I do not wish to be prescriptive or programmatic in what an anthropology for the Anthropocene might come to be, hence my case for an anthropology for the Anthropocene rather than an anthropology of the Anthropocene. I want to play with the malleability of the Anthropocene, not because I necessarily want to fill it out in a particular way, but because it opens out the space of uncertainty that characterizes the Himalaya, where the stock is drawn from, even as it presses for more political engagement and collaboration. The Anthropocene, in my reading, names, questions, and hence undoes the received narrative of human mastery over nature. I see it running alongside conversations on the politics of academic knowledge production that are assuming different forms within Euro-American universities. Anthropologists have more or less been conscious of whose voices we center in ethnographic work. Perhaps what we have been historically less attentive to is who gets to be heard, who is cited, who is considered authoritative, who is seen to be producing that which we term good anthropology, and are then allowed into the warm embrace of the we when we refer to us anthropologists, as Liana Chua and I have previously discussed. For me, these two projects aren't distinct the project of the Anthropocene, naming something particular about this moment as it interrogates and thus undoes human conceit of planetary mastery, and the project whereby we, uh, we interrogate the political economy of knowledge making, as well as historical erasures of certain voices from within the Anglophone Academy. So in short, I see the Anthropocene as opening out vital questions on knowledge making. This includes how we frame our work and what role anthropogenic climate change plays in it, as well as what kinds of conversations can be established with the arts, humanities, and the natural sciences. It opens up questions on how we write, what happens to that authorial voice when presented with a world that is shot through with existential uncertainty, and what sorts of storytellings do we adopt? And finally, who, whether these are our interlocutors, peers, or colleagues from entirely different disciplines, we choose to center. 
Okay, with this very, very long preamble, um, let us finally move to the Indian Himalaya where this work is set and from where these arguments emerge. I'll be speaking today largely of what is occurring in a small district called Chamoli, which has a long border with Tibet. Uh, I've been working in this district since 2006 when I began my doctoral work, uh, though it has been difficult in more recent years to return for a range of reasons ranging from the pandemic to the disasters this region is witnessing on a chillingly regular basis. Now, the upper Himalaya, which is where um, Chamoli is set in the state of Uttarakhand, is, which is where I'll be speaking from today, could be easily termed uh, a climate frontier or an ecological hotspot. While in many places in the world, the temporal orientation for the climate crisis looks to the near future, in this region, the future is very much already present. As Kyle White has demonstrated through his work on indigenous perspectives on climate change, the present time for some is already dystopian. So this region has for long functioned as a resource frontier with a long colonial history of extraction, uh, you know, from timber to minerals to the damming of rivers and the poaching of animals. Interestingly, also in the mountains of Uttarakhand, the anticipatory work of climate adaptation or mitigation that is now being undertaken by states or by NGOs or international organizations is still largely absent. This makes it somewhat different from, say, the Sundarbans, the mangrove forests in India and Bangladesh, where you are seeing significant investments are being made to reshape landscapes in response to climate change with as a spate of terrific recent ethnographic works are showing mixed and unanticipated results. Instead, what we're witnessing in Uttarakhand is an accelerated process of destruction in the name of development. There are large hydropower dams, uh, hydropower dams, road expansion schemes, and other such mega infrastructure projects that take forward, if not greatly accelerate the ecocidal logics of colonialism. Now, the climate crisis is present in a variety of ways in this little Himalayan state. You know? So question one, when I talk about my work, people are like, well, how do you see it? Where do you see it? Uh, and what I'm going to talk about now is where, where people, well, where we can see it, we can hear it, we can talk about it in different ways. To wider publics, it would appear to flash up periodically through what are described as disasters. And the Hindi word for this is apadda, which is also used all the time. In particular, a disaster that unfolded near the town of Kedarnath in June 2013 continues to haunt this region. This was in the language of climate science an extreme event. Following several days of unremitting monsoon rain and cloudbursts, flash floods inundated several regions of Uttarakhand. In addition to the unchar uncharacteristically fierce monsoon behavior, a contributing factor to the floods was the moraine that had been left behind by a retreating glacier. The monsoon rain filled the rock debris reservoir, um, and soon it overflowed to join the rising river. So it was the combined force of the two. So the raging uh, rain, the, uh, the, the incessant monsoon rain, and this overflow from this retreating glacier that led to this raging floods. Officially, 6,054 people were declared dead, even though unofficial accounts put the toll at much closer to 10,000, if not more. These flash floods extended well into the plains. They affected millions of people, destroyed houses, bridges, and infrastructure, and stranded over 300,000 pilgrims and tourists in the mountains. Uh, we still don't have like a proper financial accounting of, of the actual damage. And I actually don't even want to uh, speculate on those numbers because that's not the kind of story I want to necessarily tell here. In a region where one disaster or another now forms the norm on a seasonal, if not daily basis, this 2013 event is marked out as exceptional. Even in the otherwise prosaic bureaucratic language of the Indian state, it has been termed a divine disaster or a devai apadda. The 2013 disaster was considered divine partly because of the scale of the destruction, which can only be wrecked by gods and demons. As eyewitnesses and residents of Uttarakhand describe and remember it, the floods and rains were of such ferocity that it could only ever have been retribution by nature. 
the highest number of casualties and significant damage took place in the town of Kedarnath, uh, which is centered on an ancient Shiva temple and is considered holy by Hindus. Witnesses describe hearing a huge snapping noise followed by a gigantic wall of water descending on the Kedarnath temple and its surroundings. Miraculously, a huge boulder got lodged behind the temple, protecting it from significant damage. The location of the temple and its strong construction also protected it. This protection was not at hand for the surrounding buildings, many of which were swept away in the flood. An image that has now become iconic of the div divine disaster was taken much further downstream from Kedarnath in the town of Rishikesh. In it, we see the flooding Ganges River partially submerging a popular Shiva idol. With his closed eyes and beatific smile, it is as if Shiva the destroyer is resting at the end of his dance of rage. Uh, this is how it was described to me by more than one person. When I wrote of the divine disaster in the immediate aftermath of the event, I considered it a chilling foreshadowing of the Anthropocene yet unseen, a world in which rivers, glaciers, mountains, clouds, humans, and gods would act with a hitherto unknown extremity, ferocity, and unpredictability. The time, however, it is clear that the divine disaster or the Himalayan tsunami, as it is also often referred to in the media, was not an isolated or even an exceptional event, the scale of its destruction notwithstanding. Rather, disasters are becoming, to use a word that I've used much more for my research on bureaucracy, routinized. Uh, and that's, again, the way it's also often described, that this is actually now in routine. So, for example, last year, on February 7th, there was another disaster in the very same region. This was a smaller one in terms of human lives lost, but it had eerily similar visuals. I was in Dehradun, the capital city of Uttarakhand at the time, and my first inkling of the disaster was a WhatsApp forward from an old friend who lives in the region. Uh, and he basically sent me this video, which um, I really should have got here, but let me describe it instead. In that video, one could see a deluge of water ripping through the valley. And then as the camera sort of panned to the right, it blasted through a very big dam there. And in the background, the person who was sort of filming this video on his, on his smartphone, uh, he was saying with, you know, with this sort of very flat coolness almost, he said, it's all gone, everything is finished. Um, and you know, and if you just see this um, sort of apocalyptic scenes of this raging river, which again is strongly reminiscent of what happened in, in June 2013 with the Kedarnath disaster. Now, this flood trapped over 200 workers in an area called Tapuvan who were working in a tunnel. Many of these young men were buried alive and others were swept away in the flood. With cruel irony, the village that was most uh, violently affected by this disaster of last year was none other than Reni, which is the birthplace of the famed Chipko movement, uh, which again, as I'm sure many of you know, was a movement in the 1970s, uh, in, which started in, in Reni village, in which women protested the commercial felling of trees by hugging them. And this has led to the term tree hugger to be deployed to refer to environmentalists. So there was much talk of the ghosts that had emerged from the disaster. These were the souls of those who had been trapped alive in a tunnel and died waiting to be rescued. Similarly, so of those whose corpses were never recovered, other than perhaps a limb here or a scrap of cloth there, and hence never received a proper funeral. Comparisons were made here with ghosts that continue to haunt Kedarnath well after the 2013 disaster. Subsequent studies tell us that almost 27 million cubic meters of material was put into a minute-long descent that at one point was in complete freefall. 80% of this material was ice and 20% was water. So when the mass hit the valley floor, it released the energy equivalent to 15 Hiroshima atomic bombs, reported a story in the BBC. With the Chamoli disaster, there were broader questions asked, um, you know, by scientists, uh, geomorphologists, glaciologists, etc., on whether a direct causation with climate change could be ascribed. 
The tentative suggestion from both a 50-author study in the journal Science, as well as an independent study by the Wadia Institute of Geology, is that there are linkages to climate change, though attribution would be harder. And the recommendations of both these studies is that, you know, actually what you need is you have to have early warning systems in place, because had people been warned, we could have got these workers out of the tunnel, we could have told people to stay away from near the riverbank, uh, etc. So, so the conclusion seems to be, um, you know, have early warning systems in place. As such, both these disasters share an analytical repertoire. They're discussed as gloffs of glacial lake overflow, as avalanches, as flash floods. In both cases, warming temperatures, melting glaciers, and the damming of the rivers fed into the making of the disaster. Yet in these scientific assessments that are undertaken, there is a visible tussle with the question of what we are seeing here are the effects of climate change, or is this simply the precarity of life in the upper Himalaya? This is a young, unstable, mountainous, and seismic zone that is still growing. Both disasters also share a reliance on satellite imagery to explain what really happened with, in the more recent case, very swift analysis unfolding on Twitter. And this was almost happening in sort of lifetime where you suddenly um, they pick up the satellite images and they say, well, this is what happened. And is it climate change, is it not? Uh, these sort of debates go on here. Now, these assessments, invaluable as they are, intersect as well as differ from an ethnographic account of the two disasters. For the majority of mountain persons, both the divine and the Chaboni disasters were foretold, not because, like for the scientists who reconstructed the event ex post facto, the seismic activity, crumbling mountainscapes, and glacial breaches were known, but because this was all of a piece with what they have for long described as the death of the Himalaya, a place in which all life forms, be they human or non-human, are either dying or they're assuming beastly new forms. So in lieu of focusing on specific and exceptional moments, uh, my interlocutors dwell on the difficulties of the everyday, as well as on livelihood concerns. Now, I should, I should note here as an aside that I'm going to be referring to mountain persons in this talk. And when I do so, I'm speaking of people who identify overwhelmingly as belonging to the mountains. Most of them were sort of born there and they've been brought up there, they plan to live there. The younger generation is very much looking to, to exit, to sort of move to the cities and to the plains area. Um, but the older generation kind of feels trapped in the space where they have had long lives and they don't know how to get out of it, even though their children want to. Um, most of the people I've, I'm talking about here are the worked as street level bureaucrats, as subsistence farmers, NGO workers, shopkeepers, journalists, uh, teachers, students living in small towns in the district of Chamoli, as well as the adjoining district of Rudraprayag, who I've been in conversation with. Um, of course, this is a heterogeneous collection with some very important differences of subject position and political opinions within it. But for the sake of brevity, I'm going to gloss them here as mountain persons or Paharis. And also because that is a very strong identity in this region. This is a way that you know, people self-identify. And there are a lot of commonalities in the way in which they narrate their relationship with nature, with non-humans, with the world beyond, and, and with the Indian state, and with the state of Indian democracy. Uh, so I think that allows me to use this uh, slightly clunky term. Now, everyday life and livelihood are becoming increasingly difficult in the mountains of Uttarakhand. The springing up of ghost villages devoid of humans and the distressed migration to the plains region, as well as to big cities like Dehradun, are very notable. It is estimated that anything between 1750 and 7000 ghost villages exist in Uttarakhand. Yet the significance of the depopulation of the Himalaya and its relationship to poverty, unemployment and the climate crisis remains largely unremarked and understudied. The strongest indication of the climate crisis of the Himalaya for many of its residents isn't necessarily in the big disasters that I have just touched upon. Rather, it is to be found in more prosaic everyday struggles that they have. 
Um, it's to be found in things like the disappearance of forests, rains that don't come on time, rivers that are no longer as full as they used to be, but then the sundry ri rise up in rage, uh, the intense heat, uh, the heat is talked about a lot in the Himalaya, and particularly animals that are beginning to misbehave. Now, it is to these beasts that I will now turn. So one of the ways in which um, I think the climate crisis or the ways in which life in the Himalayas is described as difficult or dying as, as not very much livable is also very much in relationship to different kinds of animals. Um, and I'm going to talk particularly about big cats, uh, leopards and tigers, but particularly le leopards. A noticeable change in the upper Himalaya of late uh, has been the ways in which people describe leopards as misbehaved, as cheeky, as crooked beings. They're being cited in human-dominated landscapes, including big cities. They're increasingly losing fear of humans and aren't afraid to reveal themselves in broad daylight. They're attacking pet dogs and, and livestock, and most worryingly, are increasingly making prey of humans themselves. Such big cats are popularly known as man-eaters, and of course, they have a long history in India. Across the board in the mountains, I was told that there is a spike in attacks by big cats. I take very seriously the universal claim amongst my interlocutors in Himalaya that big cats are acting in ways that are increasingly considered out of character. It is worth noting that the more recent state statistics also show an upward trend in attacks by leopards on humans in the state, but there's no reliable way to chart out the predatory behavior of big cats and the reported upswings in it over the long durée. My project here and the wider work that this talk is drawn from is to not again try to convince anyone of the veracity of these claims of crooked cats in the Himalaya or even demonstrate any causality with the climate crisis. Rather, it is to take these claims of increasing crookedness seriously by exploring the lived reality of what it is to share space with potentially predatory non-humans and by asking what these beastly tales of crooked cats might be telling us. Now, most big cats, uh, and by this I mean tigers, lions, and leopards, are simple or straightforward. They're described as being sidha sada, you know, they, in the sense that they respect humans, uh, they're careful to avoid any unpleasant un encounters with them. Yet, there are some specific big cats who become crooked, they become teda, as, as the word is used in Hindi. Now, these are big cats that have gone off the straightforward path and are actively seeking out humans to make prey of them. And of course, the question this opens up is that why would some of them go crooked? And why do people keep sort of centering this, this facet of crooked cats in this, in this landscape? Uh, so as something that is remarkable about it, and that is speaking to wider concerns. In this talk, I'm only going to talk about the theories that proliferate on why big cats go crooked. Uh, though I explore different aspects of living with in the vicinity of crooked cats in, in my longer work. Now, there are many, many theories that proliferate on why big cats uh, suddenly become predatory. Some refer to the idiosyncrasies of individual big cats, some to the bad karma or the misfortune of human victims themselves. However, the most dominant accounts of why big cats go crooked did so with reference to power, to inequality and human actions. Big cats themselves were described as more or less innocent. Rather, it is specific types of humans and the political economic structures that they have assembled over time that have brought us to this pass. There was a sympathetic stance towards crooked cats once they had been killed or captured, that is, with very elaborate theories propounded to explain why they do what they do. I want to pause here for a moment to reflect on the manner in which beastly tales on crooked cats are related. They're highly speculative in nature. They proceed on a case-by-case -case basis and they leave space for forms of uncertainty. Even as they trace complex connections across time, space, individuals, species, and politics, these accounts do not demur from accepting uncertainty at the heart of the tale. 
It is this uncertainty on crooked cats that leads to the dense proliferation of beastly tails on them, which squares with my understanding of the Anthropocene as a condition that is foundly uncertain, foundationally uncertain and unsure, a moment in time when our knowledge-making practices need to adapt in order to take on both these unknowns. One of the ways to do so, to do so, though by no means the only mode, is to craft new storytelling tools that allow for translation across domains that are too often kept separate from one another. So to return to the theories on why certain big cats go crooked, a prominent account centered human violence against big cats. A large amount of killing and poaching of leopards and tigers has made them as a species, as well as as individuals with particular biographies, angry with humans. Thus, the many crooked cats that exist are nothing but the kin of the hunted, mutilated, and poached big cats who are seeking revenge on humans. This revenge is extracted by making prey of humans in the very same way that humans preyed on their ancestors or relatives. Interestingly, studies on North American cougars have indicated that the hunting of them leads to an increase in conflict between humans and big cats. There's also a generalized belief in the Himalaya that the more you kill and hunt tigers and leopards, the more they will retaliate in kind. Uh, Uttarakhand has a very, very high incidence of attacks by leopards, one of the highest in, India's, and this, in India. And this is often explained by reference to the long border the state shares with Nepal and Tibet, both places where poached animal parts are smuggled out to from India. The culpability of place, the practice of intense hunting, poaching, as well as the translocation of leopards categorized as problem animals were brought up as reasons that some individuals from this feline species are targeting humans. Equally, non-human animals seek retributive justice from specific individuals for the very particular actions, whatever these may be. Several theories of, uh, several stories, sorry, of individualized retribution were related. So for instance, there was famously a crooked leopard who only hunted inebriated men because her own parent had been shot by one such man. Or the leopard that limped a little and was seeking revenge on the woman who had accidentally hurt him with a sickle in the farm when he was a cub. The limp and the individualized retribution reminds one, of course, of probably the most famous crooked cat of all, the Tiger Sher Khan of uh, Kipling's Jungle Book fame. Now, another popular theory on why there are so many crooked cats in the Himalaya referred to the lack of indigeneity. These beasts are alien to mountains and their true provenance is located in the plains. When leopards, and leopards and tigers grow old in the zoos in the plains, the plains people send them up to the mountains to die. Or when a zoo gets overcrowded with leopards or tigers, they're then shipped up to the mountains. As these zoo leopards and tigers are used to being provided with meals and some are in any case too old, too old to hunt wild animals, they turn on the easiest prey of all, humans. As more and more rescue and rehabilitation centers for big cats are set up in India, the issue of overcrowding has extended to these spaces as well. There's a belief that captured or zoo-accustomed big cats are sent up from the plains to the mountains has to be understood in the context of a historical mountain-plains animosity that dominates the politics of this impoverished borderland region. The release of old leopards and tigers from zoos into what the plains people consider merely jungle, with no heat paid as usual to the peril this poses for its inhabitants, is considered just another item on a long list of actions by the plains people that combine abuse and neglect of the mountain people. A variant of the released from the zoo explanation also has some traction in Uttarakhand. In this version, the alien leopards have not been have not merely been released from zoos or rescue centers and neglectfully sent up to the mountains. Rather, these man-eaters have been sent up with an actively malign intent to kill and destroy the mountain people. The conspiratorial element in this explanation is explicit. 
A very similar discourse is present in the neighboring Himalayan state of Himachal Pradesh, where several people told me straight out that the crooked cats are objects of extermination controlled by the state. Similarly, many residents of the Sanjay Gandhi National Park in Mumbai believe that in the evening, the park authorities open the gates and the leopards come out of the park to hunt and eat whatever they can find, whether these are pet dogs or humans. So in studies of human-animal conflict around the world, such an intentionality behind the appearance of dangerous animals is often assumed, with most often the state being accused of a conspiracy to murder. There's also the question, of course, of who are the targets of crooked cats? Such beasts are believed across time and space to actively seek out certain categories of persons to prey on, even while they leave others untouched. The ones who are most likely to be targeted tend to belong to minority or vulnerable communities. So refugees, lower castes, people, mountain persons, Adivasis, the poor, and women. As Anu Jale has also noted from her work in the Sundarbans, these are there are complex political and socioeconomic reasons that make certain humans more likely to be victimized by crooked cats. These reasons run along axes of class, caste, gender, race, age, location, and nationality. Thus, crooked cats and their depredations allow for a bloodied mirroring of the wider inequalities of the world. Now, it is quite clear to almost everyone that a lack of alternative prey or the disappearance of the regular prey base of big cats is making them increasingly desperate and hungry and predatory. This paucity of food was put into the language of climate change as evidenced in extinction, biodiversity, loss, degradation, but it was only done so by local elites such as bureaucrats and NGO workers. Similar narratives on climate change are causing what is referred to as human-wildlife conflict are put forth by wildlife writers, by international conservation organizations, scientists, and the international media alike. Now, while my interlocutors in the mountains certainly made reference to the visible ecological degradation all around, and particularly mentioned the vanishing of more regular prey as major reason uh, that leopards and tigers are becoming increasingly ravenous, there were different sorts of stories that were told, and the English language word climate change was rarely deployed. Indeed, climate change was only used by agents of the state and conservation NGOs to, in fact, take attention away from human actions and rather operates as a tool of depoliticization. There's a shrugging of the shoulders. There's a reference to something that is so much bigger than what one can control. It is, after all, climate change. And this attests to the need to remain attentive to the power of this concept to invisibilize precisely that which it needs to center. This also opens up the question of whether you need to speak in the language of climate change or the Anthropocene to be speaking of processes that cause it. Ritoti Chakravarti and Pasang Sharpa similarly note from their fieldwork in uh, the same region of, uh, of, of Uttarakhand, where they sort of quote this woman who they're interviewing and she exasperatedly, exasperatedly asks them, she says, why are you so interested in the climate? The climate is not what oppresses us. Indeed, while not deploying the same language or words, the varied explanations for the increasing presence of crooked cats by long-term residents of the Himalaya carry nested stories and dense analyses within them. They're rooted in longer histories of resource extraction, the violence of the state and capital alike, as well as they're much more attentive to the manners in which class, caste, gender come to matter in such moments in time. The debate in these stories isn't over whether causality can be established with climate change or what technical inputs can be added to fix this but it is a different way to tell a story of human destruction. If we read all these varying theories on big cat crookedness together, we can see how human acts, whether this is hunting, translocation, actions undertaken in the distant past. And there's a lot of reference to what was happening during the British Raj with hunting, et cetera, uh, which I haven't talked about here. Um, and these merge with cosmology centered on reincarnation and retribution. 
At the same time, the role of the state and the use of political power, which comes across particularly strongly in the so-called conspiracy theories, are considered critical. History isn't separate from politics and religion, and there are complex interconnections that are constantly made by varied actors. This is the Anthropocene, the capacity of human actions to have such a huge impact that we are leaving a destructive human signature on the planet at work, in evidence through a coming together of empire, capital, ecology, the state, notions of karma and reincarnation, and the conceit of certain types of humans. I'm making a case here for understanding beastly tales as expressing powerful truths about the Anthropocene, as carrying what Alison Ford and Kari Norgard have termed environmental subjectivities. Ford and Norgard draw upon the work of black feminist scholars and deploy, deploy Audre Lorde's concept of the mythical norm to center culturally specific climate knowledges including those who frame, quote, climate change as symptoms of unsustainable political economic structures, end of quote. Now, as we sit together here in sort of summary London, India and Pakistan are experiencing, are experiencing such extreme heat that birds are quite literally falling from the skies. Accounts of what heat is doing to non-human animals in the Himalaya have been central ever since I first started my research there 15 years back. And as I mentioned at some point, there's a lot of talk about what heat was doing, what was happening with those winters that are so mild that you only needed you know, one jumper, etc. But there was also a lot of talk about what heat is doing to animals. And in particular, the animal that was sort of talked about a lot with regard to heat was, uh, was, was the Himalayan black bear. Bears, I was told, have been maddened by the heat in the Himalaya. They would say they've gone pagal, you know, because they're so, it's just so hot and they have these big furs, uh, furry coats that they wear, and they just can't deal with the heat. Um, and the ways in which uh, this maddening sort of worked for them, or the ways in which heat was affecting them, was that they were acting in ways that were completely inexplicable. Uh, they would just randomly attack humans, they would wantonly destroy farms, they would ransack people's houses, uh, they would, you know, suddenly like hit someone for nothing. And there was this constant talk about, but do you understand this is coming, this is not the bear's fault per se, it's just, it's so hot in the Himalaya. And this was used as an example uh, to explain uh, what heat is doing. Now, more recently, the Uttarakhand police had put up a Facebook post to explain robberies of food and grain from locked houses in the district as being undertaken by bears. This became the stuff of much hilarity and the police had to de delete the post because they were trolled so much for it, because the whole idea was that how can bears break into houses and steal food and why would they do that? Um, but the reality of crafty, scheming, thieving animals, be it leopards or bears, are central to this landscape. These non-humans go crooked, they thieve, they act in ways that constitute a radical break from the character due to the slow but sure death of the Himalaya. But as everyone would sort of tell me there, how else are they to behave given what the real beasts, that is humans, have done to the mountains, given what they, like us humans, also have to feed themselves and the families and forge ways to live in a dying landscape. Furthermore, these, these bears were not separated out from the must deer, uh, that had gone extinct in this area. So again, in this town that I lived in, uh, there's a mustier sanctuary, which is very close to it, officially a mustier sanctuary, at least on paper, but it turns out there were hardly any mustier left there. They'd gone extinct, they died off. Um, and when there was a sort of a survey, which was done at the mustier, and it was found that there was zero mustier in the sanctuary, that is called the mustier sanctuary. Um, the answer that was given by the state was that, well, it's so hot here that uh, this, as a species, they have gone extinct, that this is the reason for the death. Um, and this was one of the times in which, you know, climate change was sort of invoked by the local state. 
But mountain people were more convinced that actually this ending didn't come from the heat. It wasn't that they've gone extinct because it's become too hot. It's they've gone extinct because they're poached and they're hunted and they're killed and they sort of uh, they, they carry this very valuable musk pod within them. And this and and so basically the musk pod is um, is trafficked across the border to Tibet uh, and to Nepal, which is also sort of close by. And the reason, the real reason that mountain people would say that the musk have gone extinct is because of an uncaring, neglectful state that cares to only have sanctuaries on paper, but it doesn't do the work required for it to be a meaningful reality. Now, I could go on and on with these beastly tales. I haven't even sort of started talking about uh, forest fires that are adding to all that is burning down the Himalaya right now. But let me here try to summarize what I'm trying to argue. Perhaps a short contrast between my take on the Anthropocene and where one might see climate change, even when it is not so labeled, and one that has gained popular traction might be instructive. In a prominent intervention, the novelist Amitav Ghosh, who happens to hold a DPhil in anthropology, has railed against what he considers an astonishing failure to grasp the urgency of climate change. In his important 2016 book, The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, he notes that though South Asia is extraordinarily vulnerable to climate change, and India as a country is highly politicized with great amounts of indignation and outrage expressed on a wide range of issues, yet climate change has not resulted in an outpouring of passion in the country. Um, I'm quoting him here when he says it's not resulted in outpouring of passion in the country. Instead, he goes on to write, political energy in South Asia has increasingly come to be focused on issues that relate in one way or another to questions of identity, religion, caste, ethnicity, language, gender rights, and so on, end of quote. Now, my argument runs counter to Amitabh Ghosh's. As I see it, questions of identity, as well as expressions of indignation and outrage on other political, but not directly ecological, or at least not so named uh, issues, should be folded into discussions on the Anthropocene. As noted at the outset of this talk, one of the early critiques of the Anthropocene was its capacity to flatten out precisely such issues of inequalities and differential subject positions within the Anthropos. In my reading, criticism of and a profound awareness of climate change abounds in the political. Those seemingly absurd narratives described here of big cats being shipped up to eat natives or big cats turning on humans for the purpose of retributive justice can and ought to be seen as angry commentaries on the wider politics and practices underpinning anthropogenic climate change. This, uh, it, this of course, enables us to open out the question of how climate change is anthropogenic, to see the Anthropocene in these narratives on human actions and culpabilities. Um, so, you know, this is a sort of a different way to see the climate crisis, you know, rather than the way in which you normally see it, which is in graphs, in projections, in IPCC reports, in media articles, or other forms of knowledges that typically describe this planetary crisis. As an ethnographer, I contend the unthinkability of the impending climate crisis that Gauche finds in fiction. Perhaps the politicization that he's referring to in his book are, for instance, the politics of hate and division of the ruling party in India currently, the Bharatiya Janata Party. But surely the political is not exhausted by the politics of the BJP. Rather, there are many different kinds of political struggles that you can see uh, across South Asia at this point. I choose to see in the quotidian chatter of residents of the Himalaya, I discern several present accounts of the past, of the present and future of humans, as well as of non-humans like the endangered tiger and the leopard. What these beastly tales depict are, are naughty interspecies entanglements in the Anthropocene. Um, in my mind, a failure of the imagination is evident not as Ghosh despairs in the deep politicization of the world to the exclusion of an ecological focus. 
Rather, it lies in our inability to read these commentaries as intrinsically critical of the processes that cause and sustain global warming in the first place. Now, as a final concluding section on what an anthropology for the Anthropocene might become, I'm going to discuss a 500-page book and an 800-word article. The book, of course, is Argonauts of the Western Pacific. Published exactly 100 years ago in 1922, Malinowski ends it with these thoughts. I will let you read this. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Now, reading these lines today, one could easily be forgiven for mistakenly thinking Malinowski was actually making a case not for ethnology as a science, but for studies on the climate crisis as a science. There's a sense of urgency, that focus on time running out, which is becoming more and more central to the climate crisis. Alas, time is short, you know, will the truth of its real meaning and importance dawn before it is, it is too late? You see similar exhortations of the need to acknowledge the truth and importance of climate science or projections on the climate crisis uh, in, you know, just to give one example, IPCC reports. This is a quote from the latest, very bleak, uh, incredibly disturbing report, where they again say that there's a very brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. Now, of course, Malinowski was railing against ethnology being, as he puts it, so often mistaken by its very votaries for an idle hunting after curios, for a ramble among the savage and fantastic shapes of barbarous customs and crude superstitions, instead of the deeply philosophical, philosophical, enlightening and elevating discipline of scientific research that it really ought to become. It is hard to not consider that the site for this canonical work are small islands in the Pacific, geographical forms that, as David Chandler and Jonathan Pugh note, are becoming increasingly generative for Anthropocene thinking in a variety of ways, including through a focus on relational entanglements and by considerations of the end of the world. It is also tempting to speculate that were Malinowski back on a Pacific, on a Pacific island once again today, he would not be able to unsee the climate crisis and Argonauts as a text would be qualitatively transformed by it. A rereading of Argonauts today has thrown up a lot, not least the sense that the person who wrote it was standing on stable ground, on an island that was not sinking. But I'm also forcibly struck by Malinowski's concluding plea for anthropology to be taken seriously as a form of knowledge, as an elevating discipline of scientific research, as he puts it, that goes beyond collecting that which is novel and freakish, such as big cats that prey on humans or bears that have been maddened by the heat. And yet one cannot help feeling that anthropological knowledge on climate change continues to be relegated, at least for wider publics, to that realm of the fantastic or in the curo collection that Maranowski so abhorred. Let me give one final example to explain what I mean by this. So after the Chamoli disaster in February 2021, I was contacted with the Times of India, which is India's largest English language newspaper with a daily readership of 4 million people uh, to write an opinion piece on it. So I promptly wrote up 800 words in which I argued for locating the disaster within history, politics, time and place, as well as for how this, this was a disaster foretold by residents of the district who for long have bemoaned the systemic destruction of the environments. 
Much to my horror, the newspaper published an edited version of my essay without consulting me, in which the title was changed to talk of the wisdom of the Paharis, of the mountain people. And there were sections in the post-colonial state that were vanished, that were sort of edited out. And a gratuitous mention of the Chipko movement was added on. I'd never mentioned Chipko. And uh, I had a strong critique of the post-colonial state that was written out, though my critique of the colonial state was somehow kept in. Now, such are the perils of writing for the popular media, I had then thought. Over time though, and on the basis of similar types of reframing or requests for interviews from popular media, I've come to find those edits instructive for the follower trend on what knowledge an anthropologist can hope to offer to something such as a climate disaster. The native's point of view, as Malinowski put it, or the wisdom of the mountain people as the Times of India very cringe-makingly translated it. Despite the proliferation of several excellent climate ethnographies, anthropologists appear to continue to be relegated to the position of native informants when it comes to broader discussions on the climate crisis. What, as a concluding provocation, might it take to speak with the authority of climate science without being entirely guided by it or subsumed under the hierarchy of knowledge systems? Partly this involves a sharper communication to wider audiences, whether it is through a renewed focus on storytelling or collaborations across disciplinary divides, including with artists and humanities scholars. Several new projects are already attempting this. Leading on from this, I would argue that what we are facing currently is a disciplinary moment of reckoning with how we do anthropology, not just how we communicate it or who we collaborate with. I'm thinking here with Hannah Knox on the question of, as she puts it, how anthropologists can move from being in climate change ontologically to coming to be in climate change epistemologically, which involves, quote, a reconsideration of the human and non-human relations through which anthropology was conducted in the past and through which it will have to be redesigned in the future, end of quote. It would have been quite possible for me to write of Crooked Cats as not beastly tales that illuminate the Anthropocene, but as a more contained and probably far more elegant text that sits within the regional and multi-species literature. But to remain true to that, uh, to what is evidence in the Upper Himalaya, from extreme events to the difficulties of everyday life, from the ghost villages to the narratives of death and endings, from the bears that have been maddened by the heat, to the deer that have gone extinct, to the big cats that, that are becoming crooked, to the forest fires that are raging even in the winter, the climate crisis is present in ways that are and really ought to be impossible to ignore. These beastly tales need not be put in competition with other ways of knowing and sensing the climate crisis, but should be able to stand their ground on their own as powerfully rooting the Anthropocene and its ravages in one small part of India. Perhaps the beastly tales that I have all too briefly related here today will be received with the very same sense of uncertainty that animates these varied stories. But if in the process, they open up even the smallest chink of light on the conditions of life in the Himalaya, as well as the briefest of considerations of what are the stakes of doing ethnography in this moment in time, then I would have considered this a tale well worth the telling. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.